Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. These two suttas, two short suttas that we're going to uh, learn today, um, I plugged them into this stru- structured study because many of our recent classes um, have gotten, uh, we've, we've discussed a lot in a general way of, about how uh, resistance to developing the Dhamma can arise. And so, the Buddha recognized this as well, and he re- he classified resistance and aversion to literally just changing our mind as these five hindrances. And all of the resistance that we might have to changing our mind, to, to recognizing and abandoning our conditioned thinking, can be classified as one of these five hindrances. And what makes this important is to recognize these are common um, aspects of human behavior. In other words, there's not something wrong or missing in us that these hindrances are affecting our Dhamma practice. But the Buddha taught them often because they're important, because these are what take what takes people away from Dhamma practice. And I think we've all seen that. You know, we've been practicing this enough. We've seen it in others, and uh, we've certainly seen this in ourselves. So these common hindrances of, of uh, to practice once recognized and abandoned, then lead to and resolve themselves in what Bahia learned from the Buddha, the depersonalization of all of life's experiences. And it requires recognizing and abandoning these these five hindrances. And these are all there are. Um, from the Avarana Sutta, on one occasion the Buddha was near Savati in Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. He addressed those gathered. Friends, there are five hindrances that overwhelm mindfulness and weaken wise discernment. The first one is sensual desire. Sensual desire is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Sensual desire is wanting anything. In this moment, if I want anything to be different, more or less, or if I'm just so bored with this moment, I'm distracted by my own boredom, that's sensual desire and seeking sensual pleasure. We are conditioned to do that in each and every moment. And so we think that we can find meaning in constant sensual fulfillment or even constant sensual reinforcement, meaning this idea that I always have to have something going on. It's the first thing that the Buddha points out in in every discourse where he's teaching the beginning of stress and suffering, it's always sensual desire. And sensual desire is the one thing that we are conditioned to think that is that we deserve. We deserve to fulfill our sensual desires. And all of us believe that. And again, we're conditioned to believe it. It's our right. And maybe it is our right as human beings to keep grasping after every possible experience. The problem is then we miss actually having a human life. So the, the real choice comes down to, as wise Dharma practitioners, what do I want out of life? Do I want to fulfill all of my sensual desires? And that's fine. If that's how you want to live your life, solely chasing sensual desire, and most people think that's the whole purpose for living, that's fine. There's no judgment here. There shouldn't be any judgment in you of other people. There might be recognition of the recklessness of that type of living, though. 
And we, we recognize it in ourselves because we're willing to look at and understand the stress that we impose on ourselves. And those stressors manifest as these five hindrances, or they're motivated by it, is probably a better word to say it. Number two, yes. Could, could that be uh, described as craving then? As yep. what, you just, what you just described, I mean, in, in obviously a lot more depth and uh, with a lot more um, intricacy, but yes. craving for things to be different in the moment is essentially where eye making is rooted, right? That's, that's yep. like it's very, very deep within. To, for the, you know, where craving is. Yeah. It's vast. It's very vast. Well, yes. Thank you, Kevin. Dharma teacher, Kevin. It, craving covers all of human ill. I mean, if it wasn't for, for craving, wanting things to be different or wanting more of something, no one would ever punch another person in the nose. We never would have had wars. We wouldn't have you know, all the awful things that human beings do to each other and to themselves is based on wanting something to be different. It has to be. I mean, logic tells us that, but we also know it from ourselves. All of us have done things that we wish we didn't do. In fact, I would say we've done things that we don't understand why we did. I'm, you know, I spent many years of my life doing that. Uh, that's called wandering in samsara for Dhamma practitioners. You know, we hear that often. But this is what it is. It's giving in to sensual desire over and over again. The second noble truth is craving for and clinging to views ignorant of four noble truths is the cause of suffering. And that's what maintains conditioned thinking. Number two, ill will towards ourselves or others is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. So if we're harboring ill will towards ourselves or others, obviously we can't develop a dhamma that's based on the understanding of stress and suffering. And many of us are justified in our ill will because something or someone is blocking our sensual desire, what we want. And we create and anger, whether it's addressed at ourselves or others that we think are blocking our way. Even if it's someone who, in this moment, is acting in a way that we disapprove of, that'll take our minds away often. And look what's happening in the world today. The, whole, the world has, is polarized to, to people taking sides and blaming everybody else for how they feel and what's going on in the world. And everybody, you know, we're, we're doing it to each other. And it, um, they, they, it, it, Human mass insanity goes through stages. And if you look at history, you can see it. And so we're in one of those, I don't want to call it a dark stage, but a downward spiral. And we're going to reach a crash where we'll come back. I mean, that's just human nature. It, it happens to individuals. If they look at the, the, I'll just use a word that we might be familiar with, the biorhythms of their own life. We rise and fall in our own stress level. Well, so does the natural world. So does, so does the earth and its society because we're doing this to ourselves. And look at the polarization today. It's grit, It's the polarization today. The reason why um, hatred has become systemized is because we believe in what our sensual desire is driving us to, usually rooted, rooted in fear. We don't want to get too deep into that. It's just what's occurring in the world, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Number three, laziness and drowsiness is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Um, Laziness and drowsiness, two sides of the same coin. Uh, you probably notice this as you're in you, the recognition of your own resistance to Dharma practice as ah, I don't feel like meditating today or I don't feel like going to class. And you come up with, with uh, when your mindset is in that type of resistance mode 
anything that comes around that, that you can justify as not meditating or not practicing or not studying, or not coming to class, seems reasonable. And the more we do it, the more habituated we become to making that okay. The way to overcome that is to not allow it. When you feel lazy, you don't want to do it. Everybody knows how to practice a domino. You all know. You're not new to this. Excuse me. You all know what's required to develop a dhamma. And so when you don't do it, it's because of laziness or drowsiness. It's not right, wrong, or indifferent. It's just to, to be recognized. A common human failing rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths is laziness towards changing my mind. And the other side of the, that same coin, drowsiness, I think we talked about this last Thursday too, but drowsiness will manifest uh, as a resistance to Dhamma practice. Uh, certainly on our cushion, we might feel exhausted. And if we feel exhausted every time we sit and meditate, it's probably that. But it's also a good idea to look at if we're always tired on our cushion, am I taking good physical care of myself? Because that's an important part of Dhamma practice, to getting enough rest and eating well, etc., etc., Taking care of our physical, taking care of the form in a non-self-referential way is as important as taking care of our minds. Sorry, John. Um, yes, please. Would, would forgetfulness fall into that as well? So, so hmm. for me, nowadays, it's not so much that I'm lazy or I'm drowsy necessarily, although that might happen. It's, it's more that I'll go through an entire day. I'll have meditated in the morning and I'll meditate in the evening and then I'll realize I've gone through my entire day without, without being present or forgetting. Um, is that part or is that, would, that fit, would that be one of the other hindrances? Uh, it, it, it's a little bit hard to say. It certainly is an aspect of concentration that I know you're deepening. Um, yeah, it, it is. It, you know, it, it's, it's to be recognized as a useful, uh, let me let me just back up. It, it's impossible for me to say for sure that's what's happening with you. But it's a useful um, trick of the mind to fall into that when you're resisting something. And you might even notice it in a, in a direct way. People that you know, really don't like, you might even have a hard time remembering their name. That's an aspect of aversion manifesting as forgetfulness. Um, one of the ways, one of the things that leads to forgetfulness is being busy all the time. I'll always keeping yourself going. And, that, and that's a good way to contribute to me forgetting what is most important to me. And, you know, and that can manifest. In, that, would be, that would be sensual desire, right? If well, yeah, ultimately, it's, it, ultimately the fallback for all of us in maintaining whatever life we're living is sensual desire because that's what keeps us going. That's what feeds craving like, that Kevin just mentioned. So you, can, you could take all five of these hindrances and kind of boil them down to, to sensual desire. But it's also good to classify them as such. Like, like ill will, it's, we, we know when we're, we're stuck in, in uh, ill will towards ourselves or others. And so we know if we're in that mode, we, what do we do? We recognize and abandon it. We don't get into where did it come from and why am I feeling this way? We simply recognize it and abandon. One that I mentioned earlier that we got into something at our Sunday class, and it was similar to this. If somebody more or less insisted on seeing something in a way that was a fabrication and saying that they needed to understand the fabrication before they could move on. And what, we're learn, what we learn in the Dhamma, to, just to recognize a fabrication, not have to analyze it, understand that it's part of stress and suffering, therein is the understanding, and let it go. The same thing applies to these. Recognize they're, they're, 
They're a hindrance to understanding Four Noble Truths. And every time they come up, recognize it and simply abandon it. Take a breath. And if we do just that one thing, every time we do that to one or all of these hindrances, we're diminishing their effect. We're diminishing their clinging nature to us. We are taking control of our minds thought by thought in this way. And it, it, it is the only way. Thanks for the question. Number four, restlessness and anxiety is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. So restlessness will, will always come up on our cushion and it manifests as boredom. Boredom is the immediate need for distraction and it always leads to restlessness. And the other, you know, the other side of that same coin is worry. If we're bringing that into our cushion, we're worried about, uh, you know, tomorrow I got to meet up with the boss at 9 a.m. That is, and we're distracted by that thought or any other thought. That is perfect fodder for practice. When we find ourselves distracted by a compelling thought, use it and don't let it, don't let it dissuade you from practice. Meaning if, if your meditation practice is difficult because of tomorrow's interview, that's, that is a great opportunity. And be gentle with yourself and let that jhana session be mindfulness of the breath. Oh, I'm back into tomorrow. Back into tomorrow. I'm into tomorrow. Mindfulness of the breath. Back into tomorrow. Mindfulness of the breath. And if, even if you've got to do that every moment for 20 minutes, you are deepening your concentration. And that is a powerful jhana section, session. It will lead to deepening concentration. Even though in retrospect, right off of that session, you might say, oh, what a waste of time. That was awful. Do not judge your Dhamma practice that way or your Jhana practice. That's another aspect of being gentle. That's why I say it often. Let your Jhana sessions be just that or you're giving in to one or all of these hindrances. Okay. Uncertainty is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Uncertainty will often come up in, um, as I don't believe this is going to work for me. And if that is what's occurring in your mind, you need to look at the triple refuge. And it's because you haven't thoroughly taken refuge in a human Buddha, his Dhamma, and a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. Again, it's not a judgmental look. It's just, just to recognize I'm not completely immersed in this if uncertainty is arising. Recognize that uncertainty is mentioned as an aspect of Dhamma practice by an awakened human being. It's expected to be here. So again, don't let this hindrance drive you off your cushion. Um, we often give in to uncertainty as giving validity to the thing that we're uncertain about. Meaning, since I'm uncertain about this, that must be the reality. Okay, the hell with it then. Rather than recognizing this is something that an awakened human being taught and it is my own resistance to it that's creating the uncertainty. Let me take a breath and continue. And again, if it's if it's if it's any of these hindrances that drive you away from Dhamma practice forever, that's what it is. And that's just, that's human life too. That's an expression of the first noble truth. Dukkha occurs. And not everybody is going to take to the Dhamma, even those that put concerted effort, might not continue. The reason why they don't is always one or all of these hindrances. So if you, you know, the, the four of you that I'm talking to right now, want to maintain your Dhamma practice don't let any of these stop you. And if you don't, you'll continue. It really is that simple. The Buddha continues. These are the five hindrances. And then he says, I will provide a simile. Suppose a swift mountain river flowing unimpeded, carrying everything with it. A person builds many side channels so that the current in the middle would be dispersed and dissipated. The slowed river could carry 
could carry along everything. The, the, slow, the slowed river could not carry along everything or go far. In the same way, when a person clings to these hindrances, they are weak and ineffective. We've closed off the, the center channel, the smooth flowing river within ourselves. It is impossible for these people to understand what is for their benefit or for the benefit of others. It is impossible for these people to develop awakening and a truly noble distinction in knowledge and wisdom. And notice the Buddha points out in this, um, it is impossible for these people to understand what is for their benefit or for the benefit of others. And so you've heard me say it a couple million times, if we are truly care about other people and ourselves, if we truly love ourselves and other sentient beings, we'll take to the Dhamma. Because in that way, we are best able to serve others. Um, now, suppose a swift mountain river flowing unimpeded, carrying everything with it. A person comes along and closes all the side channels. We, do the, we close the side channels by developing the Eightfold Path. That limits our... Uh, our distraction and keeps our flow centered, the, the, the middle way. The middle of the river, the middle way, would be unimpeded and would not be dispersed and dissipated. The eightfold path is that middle river, it's the middle current, it's the strong flowing current that once we step into it and maintain it, it will carry us along to awakening. It's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? The swift river would carry along everything and go far. In the same way, when the wise Dhamma practitioner abandons these five hindrances, it becomes possible for them to develop strong discernment and, and, and are effective in their development of my Dhamma. The wise Dhamma practitioner understands what is for their benefit or for the benefit of others. They understand how to develop awakening and a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. That's the end of the Avarana Sutta, and I always got to give it a bow because it deserves it. Um, so that's a comprehensive look at uh, the hindrances. I would, if you want to do something, I did it many years ago. As I, I, I printed them out on a piece of paper and I stuck it, on, I stuck it on the old refrigerator just to remind myself. Because in the beginning of Dhamma practice, we are retraining our minds to not reacting to these things that we reacted to our whole life. So it takes a little bit of doing and a little bit of right effort. But when we recognize and abandon these hindrances, we are able to do what the Buddha taught Bahia here. But here was revered, revered in his community as a person of great understanding. One day in seclusion, or in, in Bahia's own thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going along with a metaphor in, this, in the Sutta Pitaka, not to give it credence, but just to, to uh, maintain fidelity to the metaphors that the Buddha used. And he would always use um, a higher consciousness as a metaphor for our own conditioned thinking. In other words, when he would mention uh, Mara, you've all heard of the, the malevolent god Mara. Mara was always metaphor for, the, for maintaining ignorance within our own minds and, and the, uh, the stress and suffering and chaos that Mara can wrought because we don't have control of our minds. But he entertained the idea of whether he was an arahant, an enlightened being, or was he lacking in some key understanding? Excuse me. In meditation, a female diva, or Bahia's own consciousness, told him that he was not yet an arahant. He was uncertain. Again, pointing out the uncertainty. That was, that was the, the, the diva arising in Bahia's mind. He was uncertainty. That he was not yet an arahant. In fact, his current practice did not have the qualities that could give rise to enlightenment. He asked the diva, 
in other words, insight arose within him, within him based on what he had learned. If there was one in the world who knew the, the way to the eighth, to enlightenment, the diva, or Bahia's own understanding, told him of the Arahant, a rightly self-awakened one, who teaches his Dhamma. At the time, the Buddha was in Savadhi. Bahia immediately left to find the Buddha and learn the Dhamma. He came upon a group of monks and asked them if they knew where to find the Buddha. The monks told Bahia that the Buddha was on his alms round. Everybody knows what alms is, right? You're going out for your food for the day. Bahia went into town and came upon the Buddha. Bahia feared impermanence and uncertainty and was concerned that he or the Buddha may die before he, meaning Bahia, received the Dhamma. The Buddha was serene at peace. Bahia placed himself at the Buddha's feet and asked him, pleaded with him, Teach me the Dhamma, awakened one. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and lasting happiness. Now, you think about this. this is, uh, we're, we're going back 2,600 years ago to something that I believe really occurred. And the intensity in Bahia that he's describing here uh, is, is, um, is also teaching us the intensity that we should have for developing the Dhamma. The Buddha replied, This is not the time, Bahia. I am on my alms round. Bahia pleaded, awaken one. No one can know for sure the dangers there may be for you or for me. He understood impermanence. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and lasting happiness. A second time the Buddha responded, this is not the time, Bahia. I am on my alms round. Again, Bahia pleaded. Now, you, you, I, I thought about this. Why didn't the Buddha initially relent? And one of the reasons was, is I think he was just simply focused on having his lunch. You know, he's just a human being as well. But he also may have been testing Bahia's resolve. How much does this guy really want it? And that's an important thing. You may notice that I do that to you occasionally, just kind of nudging you towards a deeper, deeper intention. I, and as, the, as three teachers here, I think Jeff might be one one day, that's an important thing to notice, that subtle aspect of, um, not coercion, but keeping people focused in the right direction. That's what the Buddha is doing here. And Bahia says, Awaken when no one, no one can know for sure the dangers there may be for, for you or for me. Teach me the Dhamma for my long-term welfare and lasting happiness. Finally, the Buddha relented. I will teach you the Dhamma. Listen carefully to my words. Train yourself in this manner. The Buddha is saying that to all of us from 2,600 years ago to right now. Train yourself in this manner. Listen carefully to my words. In what is seen, there is only the seen. There's no me in it. It's just what's occurring. I am just a reference point to what is occurring. In what is seen, there is only the seen. In what is heard, there is only the heard. In what is sensed, there is only what is sensed. In what is cognized, only, only what is cognized. Remember the teachings on the sixth sense base. Whatever comes through the sixth sense base is either, go, either going to feed my ignorance or it's going to provide the, the means for my awakening. It has to do with the quality of my mind in that moment. The Buddha continues, This is how you should train yourself, Bahia, when for you there is what is seen, only the seen, and what is heard, only the heard, and what is sensed, only the sensed, and in what is cognized, only the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection or clinging to. There is no connection with what is seen, heard, sensed, or cognized. There is no you there. When there is no you there, meaning a fabricated you, 
and you've released that fabrication, that ignorance, when there is no you there, you are neither here nor there nor anywhere in between. That's a mind united in its body. It's not a mind distracted by all kinds of concepts, all kinds of beliefs, meaning here or there, anywhere. The Buddha is pointing out to the, to the um, endless establishment of a speculative self. Because we scatter ourselves here and there with all kinds of the beliefs. The beliefs in Tulsita heaven, or a Christian heaven, or a Jewish heaven, or this type of afterlife, or that type of afterlife. The, the, the endless descriptions of afterlife experiences that are present in modern Buddhism. All of them, the Buddha says, recognize them and abandon them. When there is no you here, there, or neither here nor there, or anywhere in between. This and only this is the end of stress and unhappiness. When there, I'm going to read it again, because this is the key to the Dhamma. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor anywhere in between. You are only a reference point to what's occurring. This and only this is the end of stress and unhappiness. This and only this. But it's the only thing to do, isn't it? And it actually is. The When all the hindrances are resolved and no longer running our life, it is the easiest thing to do. It is the most gentle thing we can do. It's only difficult. And I, would, I should say it's only seemingly difficult because of the hindrances that we're not willing to let go of. And why are we not willing to let go of those hindrances that we just talked about? Because we seem to think that there's value in them. We've conditioned our our thinking to believe that there's some value in sensual desire, doubt and uncertainty, ill will, all the rest of it. Upon hearing these words of the Buddha, Bahia's mind cleared. Clinging and grasping, greed and aversion all ended and all self-referential views were extinguished. But he awakened, gaining full human maturity. Now, it's also important to understand that Bahia had been studying for quite a while. Nobody knows how long. He was just ready. He was one of those with just a speck of dust in his eye. Shortly after Bahia's encounter with the Buddha and his enlightenment, he was attacked and killed by a cow. The Buddha, upon hearing of Bahia's death, instructed some monks to retrieve the body, to cremate it properly, and to prepare a memorial to Bahia. When completed, the monks, knowing Bahia's awakening, asked the Buddha what Bahia's future state would be. The Buddha replied, Monks, Bahia was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma, and I love this next line, and did not pester me with issues not related to the Dhamma. An awakened human being said that. He did not pester him. Again, the Buddha, he's not saying that he's, he's impatient with people that pester him. He's saying Bahia was ready. He wasn't still full of, of a lot of endless questions that couldn't be answered. He understood what the Dhamma is. Monks Bahia was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with the Dhamma, meaning up until the moment he met me, he was just about ready. And he did not pester him with issues not related to the Dhamma. When he encountered the Buddha on the road, he says, just tell me what I need to know right here and right now. And, Bahia, and, the, and the Buddha told him, Bahia, monks, is totally unbound, unbound from views ignorant of four noble truths. And then he says, I love these words, where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. The four elements. What, is, what, is the, what are we referring to in the four elements? Myself, that's what I'm made of, and all of creation. Well, you made all of the world. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, 
There the stars don't shine, the sun isn't visible. There the moon doesn't appear, there darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin, through great wisdom and discernment, has realized this for themselves, then from form and formless, meaning that from the, the belief in the physical world and the belief in the magical world, form and formless, from bliss and pain he is freed, meaning from all fabricated views he is freed. That's what I thought. That is the end of the sutta. From form and formless, from bliss and pain, he is freed. By simply recognizing and abandoning self-referential views that are housed and maintained by these five simple hindrances. And it, it, again, I don't mean to be too simplistic. I know it's, this Dhamma is difficult at times to practice. But again, it's only difficult when we are giving in or not recognizing these hindrances. That's my talk for today. I hope you find it helpful. Let's go to let's go with Jeff. Jeff, how are you today? Well, thanks, John. Uh, yourself, you doing okay? Thank you. Yes, it's a wonderful day. Excellent. How about you? How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling great. Ah, good. I'm feeling really good. Yeah, I'm out for walks and you know. Yeah, you look like you got your old vigor back. Yeah, I'm feeling like it. Good. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, the the. The, the hindrances, I I think of them as habitual behavior. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know what my practice is centered around abandoning or correcting habitual behavior. Yep. It's just that. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. You, you could pick apart each one, but basically, the point is stop it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you can't say much more about it, Jeff, because it is that simple. It's recognizing, and it, you know, another word for habitual, habitual or habituated is conditioned. You know, we're, yeah. we're conditioned to, 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 to have these hindrances as part of being a human being. Yeah, in fact, like you say, it, it's because we think there's some value in, in establishing ourselves yeah. through those well, particular I, things. Or we don't think it, we feel it. Yes. Well, I would say a human being without the knowledge of the Dhamma would need these hindrances to survive in a world that is that is this um, caught up in ignorance. I mean, it really is a defense for a mind that doesn't understand. And and I would Correct. say probably necessary for that, that person. So, necessary for... I mean, I needed... I needed some of these aspects to keep myself alive, even though they also drove me towards you know years of addiction and fear and all you know terrible relationships, et cetera, et cetera. But you know that that is the problem with these hindrances. Without a without understanding what it means to be a human being, they're necessary at times just to keep us going. But when we understand, then we can abandon them. You know, and we can do it safely and gently within the framework of the Dharma. Thank you, Jeff. It's a really great insight. Tom, good to see you. Future teacher Tom. Yep. Uh, thanks, John, um, for the teaching. Um, yeah, it's. I guess it's the simplicity which draws me to the Dharma yeah. so much, and the clarity, and it's almost that double-edged sword of the the frustration that you sometimes feel when you're like, it is that simple. And yet it's so sometimes feels so elusive, you know, you're like, why? I mean, you're, you're just constantly finding, um, finding that, that, that you're, 
your core tech, just when you think you've, you've, um, you know, you're, you're getting the hang of it. Um, it has a, this practice has a uncanny knack of, um, humbling you, yeah. <laughs> reminding you that you, you're not quite as uh, humbling an ego personality and arrogant self. Yeah. That, that, of course. Yeah. 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 In itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so anyway, but as you said, you just keep going. You just keep going. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there was one one sort of question. Just if you had any tips, or maybe uh, anyone else had any ideas or tips on this. Um, I've got I've gotten the habit of meditating almost always twice a day, uh, but at least once a day, uh, but normally twice. Um, something that I often find though not not often but sometimes is i'll get to the end of a meditation i'll be halfway into a meditation and i'm almost i've gone into the meditation itself in autopilot where mm-hmm. i'm like okay i'm gonna meditate yeah i know what to do i you know i've saved your voice on my phone and i and i and i go through the whole sort of um process and then quite often I, i'll be 10 minutes into the meditation i'll be like wait what I've been completely lost, you know, lost in my thoughts entirely, almost forgetting that I'm, the reason I'm here is to meditate and to, yeah. to grow concentration. So normally, the longer the meditation goes on, the more I kind of, I'm like, okay, no, let's remember why, why I'm here and, and, and I become more, more, more focused. Just wondering if you or anyone else had any sort of tips or any sort of, ri- not, yeah. I, I know rituals is not quite the right word to use, but some, any, 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 approaches that you that you use yeah. to make sure that you sort of begin your meditation really really focused and not just sort of listening to the words of your meditation the the, uh, the ritual them so many times, they kind of they kind of party sometimes and i'm not as focused as i could be yeah the the ritual is the is the practice itself though tom and i don't i don't mean to um to dismiss what you asked uh but it's it's jhana meditation is best engage with when it's just kept pure and simple so in uh, incorporating something you know a trick or a mnemonic to get us focused is is kind of going against the whole point so if you're finding yourself distracted just by the the, the depth of your meditation it might be yeah what you i assume you've you've done you've used other meditation methods did you use meditation methods that would lead to that type of quality of mind of kind of a, a blank slate. I know a lot of, you know, Zen focused meditation leads to that establishment of nothingness or emptiness. And that can often result in that feeling of, of just gone. You know, you just, you're kind of really lost your mind. In my case, I don't think it's that. I think I, I just have, and I know everybody has a distracted mind. Um, so probably everyone says this, but I, it, it, my mind is especially, I mean, I'm, I'm a daydreamer by nature. And um, and so I just wonder if that's just it's a little bit the way my mind is kind of um, yeah. it's evolved into an especially distracted mind. So well, yeah, I, I wouldn't I say that my... practice as it as it should be, but I just forget to focus, and um, you know, yeah. Well, but you you have a quality of mind that might give rise to trains of thought that are distracting. But you said you, that's how you are. So that, again, it's not right or wrong, and it doesn't preclude you from developing the Dhamma, and you're using it properly. You said even after 10 minutes of being lost in your thought, you then remember to come back to the sensation of breathing. Mm-hmm. 
Again, they, they, that time frame isn't all that important. What's important is that you are practicing the method, and you can't practice it unless you have, unless you're mindful of it. You know, you have to remember to do it. I would also say use the use the guided. You don't you don't hear the call. Well, do you use the guided meditations from the website with five minute callbacks? Yes. And you don't hear the five minute callbacks. No, I do. I do. I do. Those are, those are, that's what reminds me. Oh, well, that that's the whole point. I mean, that's why that's why the, we use callbacks because it's common to get even even in deeper meditators, it's common to get lost up in the almost the nothingness of your breath, and it might just be that you've lost mindfulness of your breath, but you're still well concentrated. I just yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering. I, I'm not looking for a, a mind hack or anything. I'm just wondering if there's a way to. Really, when you sit down on your mat, you're like, okay, Tom, let's remember, why am I here? Yes, I'm here to to gain greater concentration. Let's do this. Rather than sort of sometimes, and I'm not saying I always do this, but sometimes I'll turn on the meditation and I'm in sort of autopilot a little bit when I start. Mm-hmm. And then the words, because I've heard your words so many times, because I always listen to your meditations, because I've heard them so many times, it, they can become almost sort of background music um, uh, or background sound. And and so it's just, I'm just wondering if there's a way to sort of help me to concentrate better and, um, you know, become better at concentrating, essentially. Not, yeah. um, that, that's, that's it. But, I, yeah. I would suggest that you look at just the beginning part of the four foundations of mindfulness before you start your meditation. Just, just the part where the Buddha's referring yeah, yeah, yeah. to, we're mindful of, First, we're mindful of our breath. You're just reminding yourself of the technique. Then I am mindful of feelings arising and passing away. I'm mindful of thoughts arising and passing away. And I'm mindful of the present quality of our mind. And maybe even go through that, you know, that four-step process, the four foundations, when you find yourself distracted. Because, again, it's, it's one of those things that are not working out. Or remind yourself of the hindrances. You know, the, your... But your... Um, your commitment to the Dhamma and to using the proper method is bearing fruit and it will only continue to bear fruit. So you're practicing it correctly. Um, even Again, even those intervals where you're not mindful of your breath, I would bet you're probably mindful of your breath. You just, you're, just, uh, you're just not aware of that ongoing process. When you recognize it, you're doing exactly what you should do is take a breath, come back into your body. But I'll ask everybody else, what would you, any advice you'd give Tom? I, uh, I I had the same experience, maybe not to that extent, but uh, I was afraid I was conditioning myself to John's words and um, becoming too familiar with the 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 rhythm of that. And so I set up an inel, just a, a a timer on the phone that rings a little chime every five minutes. Uh, and I've experimented with that some. It, it it works. Having said that, the first time I used that after our retreat on the weekend, I didn't hear a thing. And I looked. I eventually said, "Well, gee, this how long has it been?" And I looked at it, it was an hour and a half. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's normally like a twenty minute sit for me. So I can't say that it works, but that's what I've tried. And that's what I've got set up now. I, I can give you a report in a week or two and let you know. Yeah, that in, insight timer is a pretty good one. I used to use that. The, the only, uh, I don't want to say problem with that. The only thing about that is that the guidance that I use, I know you could get pretty tired of hearing the same voice over and over again, especially this one. But the guidance that I use in the meditation 
relates directly to the four foundations of mindfulness. So it reinforces that. But I agree with what Jeff said. If you just find the words, you know, they don't mean anything to you anymore because you've heard them so often, try that, you know, or, or maybe record your own. Um, play it louder, you know, that, that kind of you know, thing. Uh, John, I don't know, maybe it's just time, uh, time in the saga, time in the practice, you know. I have the timer and... You know, I kind of repeat the words in my own head, if that makes any sense. So I, I, I said, relaxing thoughts, many mindful, you know, breath in the body and allow myself a little introduction of a minute to get settled, a minute or two. And then I count the 20 minutes, uh, five minute intervals, the bell or the, and, you know, I, 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 I don't want to use the word memorize, but, you know, those words that John has you know, restore, they are the, the four foundations of my own. So I, I kind of do it in my head. I, 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 I use, I some, and, and in fact, sometimes to what you're saying, you know, I always like to look at things from a concentrated view, I guess, or from, you know, just from another view. And, and I need to go back sometime and check and get John's words and talk myself into it to hear his words. But the words are important. It's, uh, Maybe find your own way to say them because they are the four foundations of mindfulness, if that makes any sense. Find your own, I don't want to use the word inner voice or voice, but, you know, yeah, I'm I, saying it right now in my head, relaxing thoughts, remaining mindful of my breath and my body. I'm saying that, and I'll say it, like I said, for a minute or two to settle, and then I just notice breath arising, I notice thoughts arising, I notice those, and that's jhana practice and notice the quality of my mind at the end when the time's done and uh, so that would be helpful Tom yeah it is that idea of having a one or two minutes to re-read re-read the four foundations of mindfulness and really let them sink in before you then go into a meditation I think that's that's really good yeah rather than just getting going and yeah yeah. you could all you could also review the, 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 the four levels, the, the four levels of meditative absorption too, just to remind yourself to recognize that your concentration is deepening and progressing, you know, and then just come back to the sensation of breathing. But for jhana meditation to be effective, the method must be practiced as it's intended um, and with the exclusion of other things. You know, you, you, but I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that timer's fine, you know, that type of thing, but other methods, you don't want to incorporate that um, you know, as an example, it might be uh, even 10 years after I started doing jhana meditation, my old TM technique would pop into my head and I'd find myself sitting in meditation going over my mantra inadvertently, you know, but that was just because of my own conditioned thinking. So I recognized that it wasn't helping my jhana practice. It was actually distracting me, even though in the moment when I'm, you know, going over my mantra, you know, it seems like it seems like I'm doing something. But, you know, I, I did that twice a day at least for two years and it didn't do anything for me so the only method that ever made a difference to me was was jhana practice as it's as it's intended well what a great class kevin what would you say about today's suttas well uh not to crave and cling but you know sometimes like i said being around for a few of these it's nice to I could cherry pick a couple. <laughs> Those are two to hear together. And in the context of this weekend with training for calm, refocusing our calm and or our practice for calm and, and 
just really ties in nicely. I really appreciate it. Um, really prescient teaching. It just really spoke to me. So as far as that, and as far as that other technique we were talking, I think that, you know, it's somewhat skillful to use a minute or two to recollect or hold in mind as we've learned what mindfulness is, refocus our mindfulness for, for what we're about to do, the task at hand, which is meditate and recall in your mind, the four foundations of mindfulness. That's, that's a nice way to do that. Uh, You know, to, to, Notice the quality of your mind from the day or from when you just got up and to, uh, you know, get, get to work and, and, you know, breathe a bit and calm down a bit. Notice, yeah. notice these things arising and it, 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 it works. It's pretty cool. So that might work for you, Tom. I hope it does. And we'll, uh, this is a nice class to tune into. So like I said, I don't think I have any more, but two really nice suits, John. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I'm glad you joined us today. Mateo. Hi everybody, and so about the meditation tips, so the problem is John's voice then, because you listen to him and you get distracted. So, so I'll I, have to change my voice a little bit, I get a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> so for me, for example, I think it's a very personal thing, like how you go into the meditation technique, because for me, I get very extremely distracted, I never be able to do uh, meditation if voice they repeat for me stuff so I then maybe you can get also addicted no because maybe without that voice you can't do anymore so I'm more like a uh, closer to what Jeff say I feel I what I do every day I just set a time because maybe I have other things to do later and that's it so I try to be very independent to not have any more like a guide in my in my ear or the stuff and another tip is like probably you should look uh, the moment before you start meditation and the moment after. So if it's like a day that maybe you're busy, you are in a hurry, the start probably meditation is really, I mean, it's very banal tips, but probably it doesn't work. And for, for example, for me, like 20 minutes is not enough. So in my first 20 minutes are like very distracted. So I do like two sessions, 45 minutes each, because I know already the first 20 minutes just like, uh, help me to calm down to do stuff but I think if, you, you know the left is not that important it really depends on people that's and, right uh, another stuff that I do is like I do a very shocking therapy when I have this kind of problem I sit in there and I think about everything in a very quickly way about everything mm. so everything from work from family from family, but everything that is became very overwhelming that I almost collapsed and there is not there is nothing else to think you're you're ready to start meditating. Oh, it's an interesting technique there, Mateo. Uh, um, kind of just getting it all out of your system and then you can meditate. Uh, I like yeah. that. That's a, like, it's, a bit, uh, it's a bit strong. I don't do so often, but you know, you feel really like without energy yeah. because like think about everything possible in this world yeah. and then you it's, start to meditate. There, there's a personalization to, to anything we do, including Dharma practice and including jhana meditation. And as long as the framework of the Eightfold Path and the, the, the guidance for jhana meditation is maintained, uh, you, then we can do these things. I think it's good advice. I mean, I, I do this. I, don't, I never talk about it because I just do it. But I do just what we're talking about. Before, I, I mean, I sit uh, twice a day, half hour, uh, twice, you know, each, each, each session, about 12 hours apart. And I always sit for about maybe three or four, even five minutes not meditating, but just sitting quietly, just, you know, just to sit and let, let whatever thoughts I got 
go through me. I, I, I started doing that years ago just as a way of kind of emptying myself of distracting thoughts, just letting them be there, much like Matteo just de- described. And then I start my meditation. Um, I've gotten to the point in my meditation, this is for many years, where I don't judge it in any way. I'm, I'm done with my session. I know I've used it. Um, no matter how I feel, you know, I mean, sometimes I notice I feel more calm or this or that. But that's, I just leave it there. That's what it is. I feel, whatever I feel, I don't even try to classify it. And that's, that's just my meditation practice. But in that way, it's important, I think, and you're probably noticing this, as you stop evaluating, the less evaluating you do of your jhana practice, the more it becomes incorporated as your broader integration of the Eightfold Path. And you'll notice that. You'll notice that you're taking your jhana, your concentration off your cushion more and more just as you continue. And I would say, Tom, you're going to notice less and less of that, um, the void state and more mindfulness that you're actually present. But I don't think you're losing your concentration in that. And again, I'm, of course, I'm not in your head. I'm, I'm just speculating a little bit. But you're maintaining the method. I just think you're losing mindfulness of your breath, but I doubt you're caught up in, in distracting thoughts. I think you're maintaining the method. So you might just want to, um, a, a thing that you can do, I used to teach a little bit more often, is when you when you found yourself seemingly just caught up in this void, take some exaggerated breaths. <laughs> just to remind yourself, just to get the feeling of the breath going through your body. And then come back to your sensation of breathing. But, you know, we're all, we're all developing it uh, as it should be. You know, there's a, again, there's a personalization to this within the framework that, that uh, the Buddha taught us from 2,600 years ago. So, um, any questions about today's class? John, Please. Uh, about, uh, about the five hindrances, uh, I don't know if it's like, can be included or nothing to do with it. Like, cynicism. It's yeah, that, that, that's, that's doubt or uncertainty. I mean, a cynicism would be another word for doubt. You know, we, we, uh, it might be, you might even call it a more... Um, personalized type of doubt you know uh we become cynical uh but it is just a you know cynical that you know that crazy old bald guy from pennsylvania what the hell does he know you know that that maybe nothing but that's also could be a manifestation of doubt and uncertainty if you believe in what you're doing not what the bald-headed guy in pennsylvania is telling if you believe in it then why stop why let those things uh, why let them stop why let doubt and uncertainty until you know for sure it's not for you. And again, the Buddha figured all this out, and he used the word ehepasiko. you got to come and see for yourself. And you are. You're, you're, you all are, are deeply involved in the Dhamma the way it's intended, and that's why you're reaping the benefits of it. And again, I've taught long enough that I, I, you know, I, I see the difference in people that aren't completely committed, and that's really what it takes. It's not... It, it, again, we know it's not an impossible task, but it does take a deep level of commitment to this Dhamma. Those that do develop it and those that don't, don't. And again, the, the Buddha, uh, he recognized that characteristic in human beings before he even started teaching. And he, he I keep getting these things popping up. He accepted that, um, that not everybody's going to learn his Dhamma and he taught anyway. And he, and again, he. That's when he, you know, like that famous saying, for the if if it's just for those with a little dust in their eyes, 
then I'm going to get up off my cushion and start teaching. And that's when he did. Uh, and, it, and throughout that idea was present throughout his teaching career. In other words, there's suttas, you know, Devadatta comes to mind or other people came to the Buddha wanting to learn a Dhamma, but not his Dhamma. And they came, they listened, they, they left and never came back. You've all seen that here too. And so that's just the way the Dhamma is. If we say, well, that person didn't like it, it must not be any good. Well, we're just giving into a hindrance there because we've had the experience of it. Ehefusiko, it's our own experience that carries us through. It's not some promises from somebody else. You know, I can promise you awakening, you know, every class. If you don't start developing the Dhamma and see the effectiveness rather quickly, you're not, you're not coming back and I wouldn't blame you. You know, why should you? you know. Again, any, any other questions about this? Be mindful of the hindrances. Put them up on your refrigerator and don't let them stop you. Um, so do we, do we meet Saturday for the teacher meeting or not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, teacher's meeting Saturday morning at 7. So send your, okay, uh, okay. Send your notes in, please, so our teachers okay. can, other teachers can look at them. Okay. All right, we'll finish with, uh, with Meta as we always do. So again, find your relaxed meditation posture. Gently close your eyes and gently close your mouth. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace, everyone. See you all soon. See you, Captain. See you, everyone. See you all. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.